Welcome to the Chamber of Musical Curiosities, a podcast exploring the world in and around Music Aviva Australia. Hi, I'm Paul Kilday, Artistic Director of Music Aviva. Welcome to the podcast. Today I'm here with Harry Ward, the violinist. And Harry, we've had this really wonderful experience this afternoon of the first workshop playthrough of your arrangement of the Amala Piano Quartet, which he wrote as a 15-year-old. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about the, sort of the background to the piece, but also the background then to your orchestration of it for piano and for a full-string orchestra. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. it's. Um, Mar- I think Mahler wrote it about the age of 15 and it's a sort of piece where you can hear very very early sort of explorations of different types of music but still with very much uh Mahler's voice and you can really start to hear that come through the music and I've always played this piece and just sort of felt like there's something sort of anticlimactic about it and I remember us talking about that sometime last year and I thought we kind of had this back and forth conversation we sort of realized that maybe we could sort of add this into a program with the string orchestra and the piano and so today yeah we had the first sort of workshop of kind of just just extending the range adding more depth to the music and I think it sounds beautiful yeah we've really enjoyed playing it yeah Um, it did sound really beautiful and and I think the word is depth and this is this is terrible talking about a titan like like Mahler Mm -hmm. but there's a certain thinness to this piece that he wrote as a 15-year-old. Mm. And I remember our early conversations, which is, is not so much about rescuing it, but no. it is about trying to add a complexity, a layer of kind of Mahler's language as it was emerging in the kind of the 10 years following the composition of this piece, but at the same time being respectful of the fact that this is a young man's piece and he was trying to achieve certain things through it. Yeah, so how did, how did you kind of go about adding that extra layer, if you like, adding that depth? Well, with the um, with the string orchestra, we obviously have another violin section and the added bass section, and that's going to be really, really helpful to have a sort of bass drop, so to speak, in the more climactic moments. Um, but yeah, as you say, this piece is it's beautiful as it is, and I don't mean to better it or at all. It's just uh, this is more out of respect for who I think Mahler is, and 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 for my love for this music as well. Yet there was a wonderful moment in the rehearsal where we we're looking at the B section, the development. And you've done uh, two really interesting things with that. You've, you've, first of all, excluded it from the first repeat section. That's right. So that yeah. it really operates as a, as a development. Mm. And the second thing is you've, you've stressed this idea that it really sounds suddenly as if it's a Handel Concerto Grosso or, or, or you know, a bit of um, Bach keyboard writing. Yeah, he was probably studying that music at the time. And, you know, he probably added that section in to show one of his composition teachers that uh, he's been exploring this music and that he can sort of adopt that style. And it, it, it suddenly, and it's only just come to me now, uh, it makes me think of the Shostakovich second piano concerto, yeah. which is piano and strings, but the same thing, um, where he suddenly puts in Hannon exercises mm. um, into the writing for the piano part. And he just does this whole section of Hannon and then puts this really great uh, orchestration behind it. When I was watching you in rehearsal, mm. I asked the question, how self-conscious do you think Mahler was at this moment in trying to sort of emulate these great pieces um, from the past, which as mm. you say, a teacher would have been saying, you've got to learn how to write um, the way that past masters did if you want to develop your own voice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can definitely hear Mahler's own voice throughout this piece. It's been such a, an interesting exercise for me to be able to to digest this music and really get to know it and really get to know, you know, what ended up becoming this incredible composer that we've all 
you know, loved and, and been influenced by. And it's just been a real honor to explore this music. And, and it's been so nice to have uh, this first workshop today to hear it come to life. Yeah. And there was a, a great amount of respect in the room, obviously, to Marla. But most of your family was playing today. Yeah, that's right. Which, yeah, yeah. Which, is, um, which was another extra and rather beautiful element to the story. But th these are all kind of chamber and orchestral players who yeah. have played so much Mahler. Yeah, exactly. So much of today's workshop was just speaking about, you know, how we can hear different parts of, you know, maybe the Ninth Symphony or the Fifth or the Fourth Symphony in this little, you know, section of the piece or that we'd be hearing, you know, just later Mahler works already as a 15-year-old, you can you can hear the, the greatness of this composer and just how also intensely emotionally aware he was and just so he must have been such a, he must have had so much depth emotionally just to be able to put this kind of music, to be able to write this kind of music as a 15-year-old was just, it's astonishing. Yeah. And then, of course, it disappears without trace for you yeah. know, for 70 years or so. And it's discovered yeah. in Mahler's papers that Alma Mahler had kept um, in the 1950s. And, mm. and I think, uh, or even perhaps even later, Alma Mahler sanctions a performance. And then, of course, it gets published. And uh, uh, But no one has done uh, what you've done with it, which is to kind of almost to amplify Mahler's youthful voice and kind of look forward to where he was definitely going with it. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's just this arrangement should be seen as just um, an expression for my uh, admiration and love for Mahler's music. And yeah, absolutely. It is it is amplification. And I can't wait to kind of hear uh, in a few weeks time at NM with, uh, with Con. It's going to be unreal. Well, yeah, because then suddenly uh, we had uh, five string players here today. Yep. Suddenly it will be this full orchestra, 6642, yeah, exactly. I think. And that just gives, you know, even more layers and sophistication to... Yeah, well, I've done. added throughout the arrangement just quite a few sections that will be just the solo original yeah. parts. And then, you know, as the piece grows, you just add in more and more instruments and you're just afforded so many variations of colour and texture and, you know, a string orchestra really affords that. And with the original piano part as well, it's just... Yeah, I really can't wait to see how it is. And, you know, knowing an institution like ANM and, you know, where... I kind of hope that everybody in those rehearsals feels like they can put something forward and they can go, oh, let's try this, let's try and make that happen or something, you know, that it's just very inclusive, you know, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, I really can't wait. Yeah, no, me too. Um, we've partnered it with a piece by Schnitke, this concerto that he wrote in 1979 for piano and string orchestra. So mm. it's, it's kind of lovely as well because I'm, um, there are about 16 bars that Mahler wrote of a second movement, which he never completed. And, and that's part of the reason why it disappears from Trace until many years later. And then Schnitke writes this kind of mad um, completion of it. <laughs> uh, it really is. Yeah. But the Schnitke itself, uh, this concerto, is uncompromising. You know, it's mm. amazingly strong post-Stalinist, if you like, um, very, very strong, uncompromising modernist music. Mm. But there is a, a sort of a brittle beauty to it as well. And it just seems, I, I like the fact that Schnitke admired Mahler to the extent that he made this completion and that we can put them together. But also to hear mm. this level of, um, only for the second time in Australia of this particular piece, um, this level of gritty modernism. And that seems to me kind of a really wonderful thing that, you know, Anam can undertake, that Con as a proud Russian just says, yeah, you know, of course I want to play it. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a lovely program. You said something to me a moment ago, which is about 
Kaya Sariaho and a piece that she's arranged um, for violin and for cello. Mm. And you talked about it in terms of something that emerged from, um, you know, 2020 and COVID. And mm. uh, I don't like getting mawkish about this, um, but you're, you've got a pretty exciting adventure this year and it keeps shifting. The goalposts keep shifting. Yeah, um, right. So perhaps talk a little bit about that. I, Talk about the Sariaho because you said something lovely that uh, that young musicians, as we were talking about, and um, young musicians kind of really love this woman and mm. and the music that she writes. So there are a few things for you to chew on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I mean there's. I was studying at Anam only last year, and there are so many of us who just absolutely love her music. And I'll be fortunate enough to play that duet with my brother in uh, the next coming weeks. But yeah, as you say, yeah, these goalposts keep changing. And for me, 2021 was to see me in Berlin at the Karajan Academy in early February. But of course, I'm here with you in Zetland and the Music Aviva studio. And uh, because of COVID, we'll be headed off a lot later. But that has also meant that I can now be here and finally join this tour and play my own arrangement with Anam, which is something I can't wait to do. But yeah, it's, I guess it's one of these things as one door closes, another one opens. And it's just been, I'm so fortunate that uh, I can now join this tour while I wait to go to Berlin in late August. And it's interesting, I, I had a drink with Nick Deutsch the other day. He's now got an association as well with the Carrion Academy. And um, Anne was talking about how you know thrilled they are that you're coming. And it's kind of seems... Really, you know, I have this big thing about Music of Evo, you know, that we need to step uh, onto the world stage, not mm. simply, you know, be this amazing organisation that we are in, in Australia. Mm. And it kind of made me think how small that world stage can be if mm. if it drinks last week, Nick Deutsch can say, well, the Germans are really excited that, yeah. that Harry's coming over. Yeah, well, I'm so incredibly honoured. And, and thank you to Anam and, and the Carry On Academy for making that opportunity happen. And thank you to Nick as well. And they've all been so accommodating during this time with... Uh, you know, the classical music world is a small one, but with COVID, Germany feels so far away at the moment. And just, you know, overseas travel is something that is now, you really are kind of embarking on a journey. Whereas, you know, pre-COVID times, you're kind of just people jumping in and out of, you know, they'd be touring around the world. But yeah, hopefully by the time I get over there, it's going to be a little bit more like normality. And in fact, just last week, I think they did a gig for a thousand people in the, in the hall, in the Philharmonie, and each audience member was actually had to be tested before they went in, all of the players in the orchestra. But it was an incredible moment to be able to see them play uh, music for people again, as did uh, Music Aviva just on their first tour this year. Yeah, we had, we, we had this beautiful tour with Diana Doherty and the Street and Trio. Um, yeah, it was beautiful. Such yeah. a gorgeous concert. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. She's just a, a, a fantastic musician. And, and she spoke very emotionally. Um, you know, I heard it first in Adelaide early in the tour. Mm. And Diana spoke about the piece by Lachlan Skipworth, uh, this lovely oboe quartet that he's written for her. But by the time she got to Melbourne about a week later, she talked about the experience and the privilege and the honour of being back in the um, the concert hall and the role of audiences, mm. and uh, which is often overlooked. I often re remember at these moments the, the, what Benjamin Britten said, that he, he, he talked always about the holy triangle um, which linked composer, performer and audience. And um, he right. used to say, you know, you forget that one end of the triangle, that one point of the triangle at your peril. But it really felt like there was a great privilege to be there. And also down in Adelaide at the, at the festival, you know, mm. just people 
jumping on to this music and just um, so happy to be back in the concert hall. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a relief more than anything else for me just to have seen Diana in that first tour and all the concerts that are starting to happen again. It's just, um, you know, that third part of the triangle, we, uh, we were so acutely aware of how much it was missing over this last year. And it's just, I can't tell you how much it means to me to be able to join this tour with Music of Eva and now sort of experience that again and express this music for people again, not just in your bedroom or in your lounge room or in front of a camera. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that just music is about expression. It's about communication and it, it has to live in that way. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, we all we all had to work out what our approach to digital performance was during the last six months particularly. Yeah, absolutely. But um, it is really nice to have that visceral reminder of the relationship that makes the music vibrate. Yeah. It can't live in a vacuum. And uh, and if that's one good thing that we can take out of the year, that, that is the good thing. How does it affect you almost just practically in terms of playing for audiences versus, you know, throwing a camera on you? Well, you know, a great example is just of just then when we were workshopping the mala we had you know it was just us rehearsing it and we were just chipping away at it and trying to work it out and then paul came in for the last playthrough and there was just an immediate change in the energy everybody started feeding off each other everybody wanted to you know express this music and how beautiful this music is to an audience member and that that I mean, that is what it's all about. That's absolutely the essence of why we do this, of why there is any kind of art form. It is, and in such difficult times now, you know, we're still not out of COVID really. We're still in the thick of it. And there's so many different kinds of uh, issues coming to light during this time as well. And I think music is just is something that we've just, we need more than ever. The arts is something we need more than ever. And um, I bloody hope the Australian government realised that sometime soon, but... um. It's something that, you know, we just can't live without. And it's why I do it. It's why everybody does it. It's why Music of Eva exists. It's why you're listening to this podcast right now. It's about community and a coming together. And it's about listening to each other and, and expressing that and expressing our what life is all about. And, yeah, it's, um, it's so nice to be able to get a taste for that again. So it's such a relief. Music Aviva would like to say thanks for the support and ongoing partnership of West Farmers Arts. West Farmers Arts understand the vital contribution that the arts make to the communities in which we live and work, bringing people and art together. A government and a country that does have the high art and culture that you were just talking about threaded into the way it thinks and its understanding of what is vital for a liberal democracy um, for it to thrive is, of course, Germany. And with towns with their, you know, their small opera houses and their small orchestras and then bigger towns with, of course, you know, mm. the hugely funded um, mm. opera houses and scenes. So I just wonder uh, what you think that you're going to get out of these two years in Germany, um, working, of course, with amazing teachers, one of which, one of whom you can talk about in a moment, but uh, the more peripheral things, if you like, uh, mm. that you can't experience in Australia and perhaps talk about it in the context of uh, previous studies that you've undertaken outside of Australia. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is going to be an incredibly unique opportunity to be exposed to you know, one of the great 
great ensembles of the last, you know, 100, 200 years. They are just, it's a tradition. The Berlin Philharmonic, they're such an incredibly special thing whenever you go to see them play. And um, to be able to, to be fortunate enough to be studying with uh, their concert master, Noah Bendix Bagley, is something that I am um, so incredibly honoured. But yeah, Berlin as a city, it's one of those incredible melting pots it's one of those places where there's just so many different kinds of artists there and I hope that those two years although they'll be very much focused on my time with the Carry On Academy I hope to be spread thin by all that Berlin has to offer and you know I've got so many friends there who are playing all sorts of music you know jazz funk blues rock and roll but experimental classical music experimental improvisation as well and just just want to be able to in a city that has all of that to offer, but then also working with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra is just, I mean, it's a dream come true for me. And I really, um, as, I, as I said, I hope to be spread thin by all that it has to offer. It'll be really interesting to see, uh, I mean, I lived in Berlin, but lived there first before the kind of amazing expansion that took mm. place from uh, around 2005 and when it was still really, really cheap and, mm, and so yeah. the melting pot that you described mm. was partly built around the notion and knowledge that people could afford to live there. People could afford to mm. experiment. Yeah. People could afford to say, I don't actually have to take this gig. I can, you know, experiment in this regard. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I know that that still exists and Absolutely. the melting pot's still there, but I, I will be interested to see how much it's changed. And I asked this or posed this in the context of you once saying to me that you think that your career will be almost the the melting pot that you've just mm, described. You absolutely. know, the, the desire to do, as you say, the, mm. the extreme, um, wonderful, high-level classical music making as, as represented by the Berlin Phil, but at the mm. same time, a collaboration with this person or yeah. in this genre. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Different kinds of artists, photographers and visual artists. And yeah, I mean, there's just so many there. But you're right, the secret has sort of been discovered. Everybody sort of knows about that with Berlin and that's to some advantage and but also I perhaps not quite as underground as it used to be, but it's still something so special and I want to be a sponge. I want to absorb it all. I want to take it all in and I envisage my career very much to be based in Australia. So to bring all of that back with me, all of that knowledge back and experience, I'm sure we'll, um, it'll be it's, it's something that I... Uh, I'm so incredibly honoured to have that opportunity. Tell me why you envisage your career in Australia. What, what is the quality here? I mean, I think there's you... something there's something really unique about the Australian music scene. It's something that is still trying to sort of define itself. It's sort of working through trying to be like Europe or trying to be like America, and but also then trying to sort of hold on to itself. And I think it. I'd love to be a part of define well helping to define an Australian voice that is separate from all of that that is um it is such an amazing place Australia and it's taken us so long to realize that and I think that people are beginning to understand that we have an incredibly unique opportunity here to um to sort of build on what is I think one of the most sort of unique uh, music scenes around what are some of the aspects of it? And I'm thinking it's partly because, and, and you have obviously familial experience with this, um, with at least one brother playing in uh, one of the big orchestras. Mm. But in, in Berlin, if you play in the Berlin Phil, yeah. that can be it. You yeah. can do that and you can do some uh, teaching as well. Yeah, yeah. But that's it. It's a little different. So mm. in, in Australia, 
but I think it's more than just the kind of practical limitations and opportunities that Australia has. Mm. It's also something to do with the spirit or the the, the psyche almost of um, the way Australian musicians are wired. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's I've been lucky to grow up in the family that I have that I've got such amazing brothers who are you know they're just all of them are amazing musicians in their own right and the the one that you mentioned in the Sydney Symphony Orchestra his career is uh he spends a lot of time working with them but he obviously he, he does so many different things he writes his own music he um he improvises a lot he plays a lot of jazz and he's sort of you know he's just in so many different scenes within Sydney and there's just so much there there's so much there that people don't really know about and I think it's that's something I look up to and something that we kind of do together. And that's something, you know, of spreading ourselves thin through being one week we'll be sort of improvising together. I mean, just last week we were playing with a folk band, just the two of us, and uh, working on some improvised music for an upcoming concert. And I just think that's, you know, that's what it's really all about. I mean, obviously I spend a great deal of time playing classical music and I love that and that's something I really want to make a huge part of my career. But I don't like this idea that classical music is going to be sort of in its own little bubble and then every other genre hangs out. You know, they all, that's often how it is. Classical music seems to be just a little bit separate, particularly in this country. And I think that to be a part of sort of popping that bubble, that's a, definitely a goal of mine. And just making it, I think classical music would benefit so much from it being uh, understood that, you know, it is one of many genres and. I think that's a way forward for the Australian classical music scene. I completely agree mm. and, and think that we have to, of course, you know, respect the canon and respect the conventions Absolutely. surrounding the performances of the canon, but at the same time just sort of go, hang on, there are whole audiences that we don't touch mm. with the way that we present music. Mm. And then, of course, when you do actually expose them to it, you know, they're amazed at this, this you know, completely uh, wonderful art form that has kind of been um, ring-fenced from them for mm. because of the families that they've come from or mm. the demography that they represent. So mm. it is a really worthwhile thing. Absolutely. And it makes me think as well, uh, you, you talk about your, your family with such respect and parents. And there is something joyful about watching you make mm. uh, music with your siblings. Mm. There's something, I don't know, not a lot of people would get to have that experience. I know I didn't, you know, mm. and I'm incredibly close with my sisters, but mm. none of them is a musician. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think also it gave you the the possibility and the example of how to have a career, mm. a varied career, but have it in Australia, as opposed to when I was going through um, university, where it was always you had to leave and you had to kind of think mm. what the opportunities would be elsewhere. Well, and I think that's an important aspect of it as well, but we do suffer from the tall poppy syndrome here in Australia and that's it's no different in the classical music scene here. And it's, I think we need to realise there is so much going on here. There is so much to see in this country and there's so much that we need to pay respect to. And I think that's really, and there's so much we need to listen to here in this country. I think that's really going to be the way forward. But as you said, I'm, yeah, I've been very lucky to have a family of, of musicians. Mum and dad, you know, played in 60s garage rock and roll bands throughout the 80s and still do today. And, you know, I've got a brother in jazz and then there's my other brother playing cello and the oldest playing double bass. So we've all, uh, you know, I think what you saw today was just kind of the way we grew up. 
it was very beautiful to watch, and mm. uh, and I love the moment when they when they left and they just sort of said, oh, "Oh, we wish we could come and play it on tour." Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But um, you know, I sent them out the door. They can't. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't want them on tour. <laughs> Trust think, me. Yeah, I was about to say one one ward <laughs> might be enough. Uh, yeah, I had the great privilege of watching you up close uh, for a year now because of the Music of Eva Future Makers scheme. Yeah, and it just strikes me that you know, and that's the reason I invited you to join it mm. is because I actually thought there was just this amazing overlap between the values of the scheme and your values that you've just articulated mm. about where music is going, mm. who I want to work with, and mm. and why. And that's been really beautiful to watch, and and we'll pick up um, hopefully where we we left off when you when you come back here with a completely different bag of experiences um, by your side. Mm. But it, I watched you in particular with interest when um, we we had a lovely conversation with Judith Crispin, mm. who's our artist in residence this year, and we're slowly working um, exactly as you say, working on a project with her. How do you just work with this great artist and mm. poet? And and what do you come up, what project do you come up with? Mm. But I do remember we, we were kind of slightly tiptoeing as, as she herself does around her indigenous heritage because, mm. you know, she didn't find out until she was 30 that yeah. she had yeah. uh, indigenous familial links. Mm. And then you finally said, you know, how, how do we reach out? How do we build these projects? How do we listen and then also um, cooperate mm. um, with Indigenous artists? And she just said, you ask, you know, if you want to build a bridge, you mm. ask. And, and I just think that sometimes we just haven't asked. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a, yeah we haven't been asking for hundreds of years now. And I, yeah, I think one of the things that she kept coming back to was, was ask, but listen and listen and really, really, really openly listen to what they have to say and what they're expressing. And that is really the way forward because they haven't been listened to. They're unheard for too many years now. And it was just such an honour. It was such an amazing experience to be able to speak with her. I was so touched and so grateful that you guys were able to make that happen. And it was yeah, I remember writing to you afterwards almost in tears just in, in how much she had to share and had to offer on that on that subject. And it was just so so profound and, and so amazing. But yeah, it was yeah, thanks so much for making that happen. Oh no. She's consistently profound. That's yeah. the interesting thing. Yeah, exactly. We we had her speak to It's so uh, simple as well. I mean, just ask and listen. I mean, that's it. And that's we're still not doing it enough today at all. Yeah. And in, in the listening also you learn. And, yeah, um, and, exactly. And she's been really fantastic on, on talking about how you turn this incredibly specialised art form, which in her case was, you know, studying composition first with Larry Sitsky and then with Karl Stockhausen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, God. you know, how you translate that almost into other art forms yeah. and then how you do that also by respecting the, you know, she talks a lot about how it's impossible for Indigenous Australians to segregate culture from mm. their everyday life and mm. the way that they think and, and the way that they operate. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing that we live often in a very segregated culture and, um, yeah. and that's the great lesson that we can learn. Totally, absolutely, yeah. We have so much to learn. Yeah. Apart from, I, I remember Richard Tonietti once saying that, you know, he had to... Um, lock himself up for a couple of years mm. and, and just kind of, you know, thrash out a few things um, technically when he was young. Mm. 
How do you reconcile that, the mm. things that you want to achieve technically with what you spoke about before, about just being a sponge in Berlin and, mm. and recognising that there are things that you may want to learn in that way, mm. but there are so many things that you want to learn just in terms of experientially and how that's going to change your practice for the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's you don't want to just be so spread thin that you, you forget about what you've learned. I mean, I have a great deal of respect and love for the canon of classical music. I mean, that is, I practice every day. And But what we often don't understand with classical music is that these techniques and this respect and this amount of time that we spend with this music, that, that doesn't then just mean that you can't go and absorb other kinds of music. I mean, it's it's you know, it, but it goes the other way that you can't just go and say, "Well, now because I can play violin, I can play anything on the violin." It's you know, it comes back to listening and and just. I don't need to be someone who plays absolutely everything. It's just about listening and becoming a better person, but also a better musician and a more well-rounded musician by going to these concerts. I mean, going to these other gigs, going to these you know these different art exhibitions. I mean, so much of the time you see a lot of classical musicians, they're studying classical music, they go to all these classical gigs and that's great. I love that. But, you know, just down the road after that classical gig, there's probably an unreal jazz gig, you know, at the local pub that you just didn't know about. And it's those experiences. It's about listening and it's not to assume that I'm going to be able to go and play all this sort of music, but it's just... I just think it's so important that we do not have this segregation between these genres like this and, and this they should be constantly overlapping and that's what's so great about a place like Berlin is that it's just all happening. It's all happening at once and it's just so enriching. I mean, that's what being a musician is all about. There's so many different ways to express a particular emotion. There's so many different cultures that have expressed it for, for many, many years that you can be influenced by and you know, after some time, you might be able to find yourself that you can get up and improvise and play a jazz gig. You know, after some time, you might find that you might start writing some of your own music, you know, just by having these experiences. But as I said, yeah, this is all comes out of a deep love for music and, and the canon of classical music and the traditions of it as well. We're going to miss you um, in the <laughs> years that you're gone, um, but I'm just thrilled that the timing somehow, the gods of COVID, uh, finally smiled on us and you <sighs> can be exactly. on this tour and um, playing this exquisite music, the Tchaikovsky, your really beautiful arrangement of the Mahler, mm -hmm. um, the Kerem, uh, this wonderful piece we haven't talked about, and, but anyway, people need to um, hear this beautiful arrangement yeah, that be Kerem's done for you on violin and strings mm. and the Schnitker. But the promise I'd love you to make is that um, while you're away that either you or I can um, email or pick up the phone to each other and say, hey, I've got this idea. Yeah, absolutely, of course. There'll be plenty of those for. <laughs> Harry Ward, uh, delight as ever to talk to you and to um, hear a little bit of uh, your brain and what goes on inside <laughs> it. And thanks also, you know, as we know better than ever, thanks to our listeners who, um, who make us want to get up there and do that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find show notes for the episode on our website, musicaviva.com.au forward slash podcast. To learn more about our work and upcoming concerts, find us on Facebook by searching Music Aviva Australia and on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Music Aviva AU. Thanks again and see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>